0: I, wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog! I'm Joel Volk and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and expose strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. Kathy Yamaguchi works at the intersection of passion and problem solving. She has a keen eye for business and it's inspired by her rich family history. As you listen to this interview, as a small business person, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully, you'll learn something while finding inspiration and ideas from the people I introduce you to, like Kathy. Hopefully, you'll laugh a little too. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. What brings a nice girl from Southern California to, <laughs> to Chesterford, Missouri to read to a horse? What's your story? How did how'd you get there?
1: So I got into horses when I was going to CSUN and I was trying to get my uh, major, um, I was majoring in art. Um, And I actually got my bachelor's degree through there, but I was also at the time working at an elementary school and I was going through to class to class, teaching art and everything. And I've always, always loved horses. I really wanted to take horseback riding lessons and really wanting to learn about horses. But at the time, you know, my parents, immigrant parents coming from Japan after the war, really stressed education, you know, and they thought that was like the most ridiculous idea. (laughs) I would want to take horseback writing lessons. Instead, you know, it was like piano lessons right. <laughs> or Japanese language school on Saturdays, you know, kind of thing. It wasn't until I actually diverted plans and I went into teaching and I was employed through LA Unified School District, you know, paid for my own lessons. I just started to take writing lessons at the, I think it's called Burbank Estonian Center oh, sure. at the time. I think it was LA. Yeah. Center. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Over and by I Pickwick taking, over there. Right, riding.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. And then, um, and it was just, oh my God, it was such a passion. And i met some really good friends that we would go trail riding, um, you know, on the weekends. I actually ended up buying a horse and everything. And so, um, and it was my husband at the time that uh, was going to medical school and i actually when we got married i did move back to washington dc where he was doing his residency Uh and then from residency he did a fellowship up in new york and so there was a little bit of moving around going on um so and then i had kids and i stopped writing for gosh there was a there was a period of time where i just stopped but it wasn't until uh, his job here in st louis that i started to get back into riding and getting back into horses. And it was a classmate of my son's who, um, his family owned this farm. And I actually ended up buying the farm later in, you know, years down the road, buying the farm because I loved it so much. It was, I bought another horse. It was where I was boring my horse. I was taking lessons and and I just loved this farm so much and I loved everything about it there's a indoor regulation size dressage arena so oh. even though it may be you know you know whatever snow outside or a snowy day that you can still ride indoors it's pretty oh, cool wow. oh, that's pretty
0: interesting. <laughs> yeah so, and, so you-
1: and also there's an outdoor arena as well but it's all enclosed so it's pretty it, it's pretty nice that people don't have to you know tromp through the snow to get through to the riding ring you know that they can stay within the building and just ride
0: (laughs) so i understand why you went to the area but being a turning into entrepreneur from having a, a teaching credential and teaching that's a big jump and that's a big business there's so many moving parts to the equestrian center were your parents entrepreneurs were they business people
1: Yes. So my father, you know my father just celebrated his ninety-seventh birthday. Right. And can we
0: stop that for a second, just talk about him for a second? Because what what I read the other day was remarkable to me. So what's his name? Yeah, that
1: should be another podcast. His name is Matsuo. Matsuo. Matsuo, yes.
0: And he and he was in Hiroshima.
1: Yes. So he was majoring in marine biology at Tokyo University. And at the time when the war broke out, everybody, the, clo- the school shut down and everybody was sent home. And my, um, my grandmother and grandfather who owned a farm in the outskirts of, the, of Hiroshima city, they were up in the mountains actually, um, wanted my father to come home and help on the farm. And so he, he went back and unfortunately a lot of his friends um had perished during the atomic bombing they wow. um you know they were in the city and everything and whereas my father you know like he was on the outskirts and um away from the city and my father vividly remembers everything about that day and wow. the whole that mushroom cloud and um And he had always said and recollected that it was was like a saving grace thing that the wind that day had blown all of that, you know, all of that cloud and everything in the opposite direction from where they lived. Can you imagine?
0: No.
1: You you know, blowing your way in just, yeah. And then the other thing too was that because they were farmers and I don't know if you, in Japanese culture there's a lot of pickling that goes on. And they pickle their vegetables and everything they grew rice and stuff. And they never really suffered starvation like a lot of other oh. people did because they had um, they had food. Right. yeah. So um, they were very, very fortunate in so many ways. My father came over, I don't know the exact year. But he was in his early 20s, which was a crazy thing, because at that time, after the war, there was so much prejudice going on. There was, oh, my God, a tremendous amount. And his- I think even
0: when we were kids, there was when we were kids, there was prejudice going
1: on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, when you and I, you and I, people listening should know that you and I were childhood friends and went to high school yeah. together and i think junior high school as well right yeah yes right? but i remember people saying i'm um, listen i'm jewish i experienced it too but i remember people saying things that were um you know were offensive would be offensive to anybody who's of japanese descent i remember that very well
1: and also um at that time there it was a predominantly you know all-white neighborhood right and the schools that i went to i mean there was just really a handful of right. Uh, you know, Asians, whatever. But yeah, it was my father. He was just so um, adamant about coming over to the United States after the war. Um, he stayed with his uncle and his aunt uh, that were already living in LA at the time. They really helped him acclimate to living in the United States. My father just always had like this dream of making it in the United States, uh-huh. I guess. He started out as working as a gardener, actually in Beverly Hills. And it was I very, remember- Very
0: stereotypical then, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I remember when I was little, he would always like load up the bike in the back of his truck. And while he was, you know, tending to these- um, beautiful homes and everything. I would just ride my bike up and down the street. (laughs) And so, um, and then my father and my mother, they couldn't decide whether or not they wanted to go into the restaurant business or the nursery business. Uh And my mother had siblings that were in the nursery business. And so they decided to start a nursery on their own. And they, we, I grew up in Santa Monica and, um, and I was about five years old at the time when they decided to buy a place in the valley, you know, and start their nursery business. Where and was it? It was um, actually very close to Sepulveda Junior High School. It started in their backyard, and and then they just they started to really um, become busier. And then my parents actually bought property up. Devonshire and Lamona's Povera Boulevard, they run parallel. They bought two properties up there and that's where a lot of their nursery business uh, was going on. And then they actually ended up buying another property on the uh, same street, like three blocks away that had a larger growing grounds. And at the time, we didn't have the big box stores like Lowe's and Home Depot. It was like these small mom and pop kind of nursery um, businesses where they had all their my my mom referred to it as other plants like all the um Uh the plants growing in the ground and they would do the cuttings from there i see and um and then they would you know plant it in trays and it would move to the greenhouse and everything but this whole process Took time and as time went on and they got busier and busier. They couldn't keep up with the demands. And so my, my father was doing a lot of business up in Oxnard carpenteria like from wholesale growers Uh and you know like really bringing in a lot of lot more plants and stuff while their own plants were like in the greenhouse trying to take root and (laughs) And so, um, and they they did that business for 45 years. 45 years, wow. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, And during that time, what was very interesting when I, I remember when I was um, growing up, that they were still, the government in Japan was still studying um, and following up with the healthcare of the residents from Hiroshima Uh in the Los Angeles area. I see. Providing um, you know wellness checkups and stuff like that, but also documenting their you know like their health. Was there any illnesses or whatever? Because right. they were really tracking to see if there was any you know like radiation uh, problems from the bombing and stuff and cancer right. that was very prevalent and stuff like that. So um, the Japanese government for the residents of Hiroshima. Was uh, had offered like taking care of 100% of their health care and, you know, pharmaceutical expenses or dental expenses and just uh, compensation a little bit, kind of like collecting social security, right. you know, just for their care. Yeah. Which was really very nice. And to this day, my father still gets that.
0: Yeah. What a... What a story. And, and your, your father, uh, your parents worked the business together, so they were very hardworking people, I assume?
1: They were extremely hardworking. Very, very hardworking.
0: We're going to take a short break and be right back. You may remember Janice Miller of Miller Haga Law Group from our episode Saving Nigel in Season 1. Miller Haga supports businesses of all sizes from large to small. No matter what phase your business is in, from startup to wind down, Miller-Haga Law Group acts as your innovative general counsel. Their experienced team of lawyers will keep the gears of your business turning. If you want to minimize your liability while maximizing your profits with competent and efficient counsel, contact MillerHaga.com for more information. That's MillerHaga, H-A-G-A dot Small BizCast is proud to support Fit for the Cause. Fit for the Cause is the leading organization in fitness for low-income and special needs communities. Founded in response to the national health crisis, Fit for the Cause has used licensed and COVID conscious trainers to keep their members active, even during the pandemic. Offering physical training, nutrition, and a variety of classes, members benefit from the same resources given to special Olympic athletes. So stay active now by going to www fitforthecause.org, that's fit, the numeral four, thecause.org. Document technology continues to be a challenge for businesses as they go back and forth from working remotely to working in-house. One of the challenges facing management is that documents need to be shared They also need to be secure. There's privacy issues, there's access issues. Those are the types of things that keep people up at night. Mercury Document Imaging has been solving problems like these since 1982. We are in the unique position to leverage our years of experience with our tremendous resources to solve this and other similar problems. We do it economically. More important, we do it efficiently. So if you have issues that you'd like us to help with, please call 818-782-1221 or go to MercuryDoc.com, M-E-R-C-U-R-Y-D-O-C.com. We are back. You are listening to Small BizCast. I'm Joel Volk, and I'm speaking with Kathy Yamaguchi of Epic Equestrian.
1: One of the things that my father was doing also was he was making his own potting soil. Oh, you wow. Know, he had this big piece of machinery equipment. And I remember the truckloads of like sand and the delivery of packages of verbo vermiculite and peat moss and everything they were dumping it into these machines and you know cranking out their own potting soil and that's kind of I knew when I bought the horse farm you know many years down the road that there was a way to instead of having a trash company or whatever pick up all that waste I knew there was a way of turning it into compost i just it's it was trial error trial error trial error. boom oh we figured it out you know so, so that's your other
0: business muds and buds right
1: right so we we compost uh which is like kind of making like wine because you mm-hmm. know it's not an overnight process it takes time for it to age and bake and all that <laughs> and uh but the end result is good and you do this on your farm Mm-hmm. I yes
0: see. gotcha yes that's pretty smart utilizing that. Why 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 is it a separate business is it a separate profit center or a separate client base? Is it how does that work?
1: Yes, it's definitely a different client base. So the people here that are boarding on my at my farm are, you know, they're they're, they're here because they have that special horse that right. they want their horse to show and compete and everything like that. A horse can produce 50 pounds of waste a day. Wow. Times that by 20 something horses, you know, at a given time. That's a lot of manure to right. have to you know deal with and stuff in order for us to get to the end result where it's actually very beneficial for gardens and stuff it takes over a year's time to really aerate those piles and break it down and all that nitrogen to wow. um, you know to, to really work it and everything and have it decompose and stuff and um, but we've been really selling it um to a lot of garden hobbyists Mm -hmm. who um are into not only growing their own vegetables but um a lot of them that i talk to are into canning and pickling which brings me back to oh my gosh my grandparents in japan used to do you know and and uh and freezing and you know that whole lost art of um of, of knowing where their food comes from basically and especially this year during the pandemic Oh my gosh. We have sold so much compost because people were staying home. People were right. looking for things to do. People were gardening. People really wanted to start to, you know, grow vegetables and everything like that. And I even, it's December and I'm still selling compost because people mm-hmm. are getting a jump start for next spring. Now, um, is, that,
0: is that a process you developed yourself?
1: What? <laughs> the,
0: the, comp, the composting from the horse manure?
1: Um, I think that you know, people have done it, but I know that I am the only commercial farm horse farm mm-hmm. that is doing it and selling it to the public.
0: So I'm just curious, as a as a business model, is that something that you can replicate to other horse farms throughout the country? And
1: I could, and I've gotten some phone calls from various farms located elsewhere. Yes. Um, You know, picking my brain. How did, how did, how do you do this? How did you get, you know, how did you want to know, like my whole trade secrets (laughs) of how I, how I've done this, you know, and stuff. Um, But it, it does, you know, it goes back to the whole old school method. It does take elbow grease, right? you know, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of big, huge equipment that you can use to really aerate your piles and stuff like that. But you, those machinery and equipment are well over a hundred grand. Right. you know. And so for us little, you know, we're just little, a little farm here. Um, we just go in with our tractor and we just, <laughs> we do it the old fashioned way and just, you know, getting the bucket and turning it over. And we right. do that, you know, um, on a rotation basis and, um, having it break down. The end result though, is like a very dark black humus compost. That's just amazing for any, Mm
0: -hmm. we have
1: clay soil here. I know out there you have sand, um, but clay soil, nothing grows in it. I mean, it's like, it's so hard to get anything to grow in it. Sure. to really amend that soil and get it in and dig it and really work it is just the best thing. Mm-hmm. So, and it's nice, you know, I have repeat customers that will always come back each year and I always ask them how their gardens have done And they're like, they're so happy. <laughs> now I have no control over the weather. Like when it's really rainy, you know, we have a rainy season or whatever, you right. know, that can't help, but I can help them improve their soil.
0: <laughs> so you must, um, what a great homage to your dad, actually.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know what, if if we had access to compost and he was sitting there making all his potting soil and throwing in compost in there, I think really what you have is miracle Grow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I could say that.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's really impressive. I, it's, it's really impressive. I really, your eye for, for business, actually.
1: I'm really huge on recycling and I hate to see waste when, I don't know, and to just really avoid animal waste, horse manure um, ending up in landfills. I knew that there had to be a way to, to work an advantage, you know, for the environment and stuff. The Missouri Botanical Garden, and I remember when I had this idea of trying to get into compost uh-huh. composting, you know, I talked to um, someone there a lot about composting and what do they usually use their compost for and stuff. And at the time they had said that they use um, a lot of for, like for the rose bushes, like when they winterize and really covering the root ball and everything like that. But they they were a big proponent of using compost anyway for all their all their plantings and stuff like that. Um, once I really got into this and I really researched everything and I really you know figured out stuff, um, I did write a paper with the U.S. Green um, Council building here in St. Louis. And um, they had these categories and awards for companies that, um, that uh, you know, go green and whatnot and stuff. And there was that one category of, um, you know, like a zero waste kind of thing. Right. So I wrote up Epic Equestrian and, and Mud and Buds. And right, so that I won that award for that year and stuff. And it was just, um, it was it was nice to see that, you know, all those hours of researching something and really, you know, again, that trial and error, trial and error, and trying to figure this out. I knew that it was like almost at times banging my head against the wall. Like, I know there's a way we could do this and stuff. And, um, and then finally figuring out the system and stuff. Mm-hmm. It was just, I don't know. It was just a nice little appreciation. It's just oh, like sure. getting a, you know, winning a, a ribbon at a horse show. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I was, I, I, I I was always very uncomfortable with um with um my competitors knowing that we were doing what we were doing, and I was very comfortable having it being underestimated I know because i was and, and when i won I won a Xerox Partner of the Year award for the nation yeah, and yeah. that that actually i that actually made me very uncomfortable because all of a sudden people who people that were much bigger than us started to hear about us they were mm-hmm. who's this comp-? all of a sudden you're getting big competitors thinking who who is that and looking into us. And I didn't want to, I I was doing a few things that were completely contrary to the rest of the industry. And I didn't want to share that with anybody. I wanted to keep that as my secret. But it really wasn't, if if you look closely, you could see what I was doing. I wasn't, I just wasn't talking about it. But any, but, and so I I became very uncomfortable with the the attention. So I'm curious if you had a similar uh, reaction to that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do have people that will call that had asked, you know, they want to set up the same type of system or, You know, they want to know, how am I doing this and getting rid of a lot of the horse manure or whatnot, and, um, or even trying to sell, you know, like what I ended up doing is selling to the public. Um, And a lot of it, I think over time, since Mud and Bud was launched in 2014, and this is my sixth year, it's word of mouth. You know, I'll get some phone calls that will say, my neighbor just got compost from me, you know, can you, we also deliver too,
0: uh, how much is so, it delivered to California? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's $90 within a 50 mile radius. Ah, from okay. Where my farm is. <laughs> but in the meantime, out of this whole pandemic thing, I'm going to jump a little bit from you that, um, again, it was, uh, picking up a skill from my parents with, um, sewing. <laughs> I was just goofing around and, um, and I had some fabric still, you know, I was really into sewing at one point and um, and this whole pandemic started. And then they were talking about fabric masks because there were no masks out, you know, out in stores to purchase or anything like that. And I just, I I don't know, I had some material laying around and I just thought, hmm, okay, let me try sewing some masks. And I was just doing it for my kids and it was just I was so shocked at how many people reached out to me saying, Oh my gosh, are you selling? Can can you make you know, can you sew some masks for me? I'll pay you kind of thing. And the requests just got so great that I was just like, huh, I wonder if the
0: <laughs> well, well here's what I saw. So so on, on the Etsy store's love loose shop, right? Love LU shop. And, yeah and I went on, and I saw you have stylish masks, you have masks that are that that <laughs> might, that might match an outfit yes match it. look it's not just a plain mask that you can just get at you know anywhere. right. They're, they're stylized right. and they seem like they're theme. They're, they have themes to them and there's yes. different patterns and sizes for different, yes. you know, all of us have different size faces. And um, so it was, it was one of the things that I, that made me want to reach out to you to invite you on the podcast. Cause I thought, boy, she is so responsive. Look at that. And then, <laughs> and then you read your story. And It's a little more of an homage because you said your mother was a seamstress when she came to this. Oh, country. my
1: goodness! So, yes, look at,
0: look at you. You're you know, really, you're first generation American, right? Your parents were born out of the country, both your parents born out of the country.
1: Actually, both my okay, this is where the story gets a little. They were actually born in the United States. Oh, wow, grandparents were in the United States, but it was very common for them to go back to Japan. Gotcha. My father was really, really young. My mother, too, was very, very young when she went back. And it wasn't until after the war they came back again.
0: I, so- I guess, I, guess my, I didn't realize that. But I guess my point would be the same, that, that you really came from, you know, this from a, a culture where you really have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And yes, and and to succeed. And, and your parents gave you this great upbringing and you, you moved to the Midwest and you, and you took those same lessons and you just did it on your own with those gifts. And I think it's just wonderful. I think it's, I I (laughs) love it. I love it. And and so there's only three businesses. When did you, when did you buy the farm? What was the year of that?
1: I bought it in 2011.
0: 11. So in nine years, three businesses. So, and then, so I'm thinking there's going to be three more in the next nine years. Is that,
1: Uh, (laughs) well, you know, it's funny because each of those businesses, except for the horse farm were all things that, um, that I learned from my parents really I mean the whole composting business I kind of uh, you know give my dad credit uh watching him do and make potting soil um Louie Lou which is named after my two french bulldogs
0: <laughs> oh, oh, Louie <laughs> Lou not love
1: yeah, I have Louie Lou oh, right. and then I have my other dog V which is for say Lovee um so I just I don't know I combine their names Louby Lou <laughs> by the way
0: by the way for you know if, if, if you have, do you have an Instagram page
1: I do have an Instagram page
0: because I, I think it was either Instagram or Facebook that I saw the travels of Louie as you take him to the beach that was Facebook remember. yes On Facebook yeah. okay yes so that's a <laughs> very very cute uh they're, he
1: loves traveling yeah. <laughs> he's disappointed he can't travel right now he's a little bit bummed but um yes so going back to my mother she was a seamstress and she was working in a sewing factory when she came over um, to the united states and one of the things i don't know if you remember this from junior high school uh, home economics class shop and everything and it's really unfortunate that i hear that they really don't offer that anymore because that's where they introduced sewing and also cooking and and um, I, d- I thought it was a great class and I remember all the projects and everything that we had to do and, um, and that's when you know I really I you know I was introduced to sewing but also when I really got into it I was sewing at home and my mother was you know showing me things and stuff like that and actually all of my cousins um, had the same upbringing because their their mothers were all seamstresses also. So it was very common, I think, in Japanese Japanese American households that, I guess kids my age, they all grew up sewing. I don't
0: know. Kathy Yamaguchi, thank you for spending this time with us and telling us your stories. I know that our listeners picked up on what drives you and they are as inspired as I am with your passion, your respect for your family history. It's really a remarkable story. I wish you nothing but success. Dina Braverman has OCD. Her business, Organizing Concepts and Designs, takes the organizing industry to another level. She's our next guest. Here's a sneak peek.
1: We have come up with some amazing alternatives to how to keep stuff. You don't always need to keep stuff in its original form. I have one client, for instance, whose dad passed away and he had left all of his sweatshirts from high school. He was on a football team. He was very into football and got her into football. So he had all of his sweatshirts from high school, college, being a sports fan, and they were in many, many, many bins. So we took the the best of the best and we made her a quilt. Oh,
0: that's a good so idea. Now,
1: so now it's not in bins in the garage, which are right. stacked up for no one to wear, see, or use ever again. Right. And it's actually an item that she uses and loves. And it's with her in her living room, over her couch, all the time. You know, we've got bins and bins of of children's artwork from kindergarten and and before and and after. And they're in bins and bins and bins in the garage.
0: (laughs) Small BizCast drops every other Tuesday. Follow us on our socials for business tidbits and special offers. Thanks again for our sponsors, the Miller-Haga Law Group and Mercury Document Imaging. And remember to support Fit For The Cause. And of course, thanks to my producer, Chaz Volk of Mr. Thrive Media couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much for listening. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life.